Paracast, with your hosts Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You know, David, I have been living in Arizona for 13 years. It gets pretty hot here. It can get up to 120 degrees in the shade, but I've never felt the urge to burst into flame. I would think in that kind of heat, um, whether you felt the urge or not, you would be on fire. Well, there's a thing called air conditioning. It's a brand new invention that has been around for a few decades that kind of helps. Well, I guess air conditioning is the reason that people live in Florida, too. I mean, the whole southern United States ended up getting developed, really, because of air conditioning. Otherwise, Florida would still be a swamp. Oh, wait, it still is a swamp. Hey, you know, I should point out here, David, and by the way, this is the PowerCast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney, show number three. And I really want to make it clear to everyone here that I do not believe, I do not believe that air conditioners are based on alien technology. Yeah, I wouldn't think so. I mean, in space, it's really, really cold. Why would you need an air conditioner? Space heater would be much more useful. (laughs) Well, you know, the aliens (laughs) might need some way to cool their spaceships. Uh, Who? The aliens. They cool their spaceships? They're in space, dude. It's 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 cold in space. Sure, but I'm thinking inside the ship with all that hot gear going on. I don't know. I think they'd be more concerned about the lighting, Gene. Well, the gravity. You know, they don't like <laughs> bumping, You know, especially those small, naked, gray beings. They don't like bumping against walls and things. It gets kind of hurtful no, after no. a while. Well, you're saying naked, but we don't know if that if they're naked or if that skin is some kind of an exoskeleton suit thing. I mean, we're not sure if they're naked. Have we seen anything that would indicate they're anatomically correct? We shouldn't even go in this direction. No, I think we're really pushing the envelope here. And uh, yeah. let's open the envelope here and look at what we're going to have on this episode of the PowerCast. First off, we're going to talk about a book called A Blaze, and it's about spontaneous human combustion from Larry Arnold, and he's going to explain why people apparently burn up. There's been a lot of cases of this recorded um, in in the past century. I, I know a little bit about this topic, Gene, but what's weird about this is that most of the documented cases, and there are some very well-documented cases with a a bunch of photographic evidence. They're mostly concentrated in the years between 1950 and the 1980s. I don't think there's been much activity in this realm in the past 15 or 20 years. I wonder why. Well, I think we're going to have to find out from Larry what's going on. The other thing I want to find out about is the issue about Roswell, New Mexico. Now, Roswell, New Mexico makes a lot of money from tourist trade because of the legend that spacecraft crashed there. Now, the other thing I have concerns about here, is it true that the space people get their craft built by the lowest bidder? (laughs) Is that the reason that they always crash? You know, because I'm thinking here, we understand that nothing is perfect. And we don't expect that if there are beings on other planets, as there most likely are, that if they're coming here, that all their ships work properly. There may be reasons where they fail from time to time, and so it's possible one of them or more than one of them has crashed over the years. But this thing about Roswell, you know, there's been a lot of hucksterism involved in that situation, and although I would not dismiss the possibility that alien life forms did come here and crash, so many people try to cash in, you wonder really what's going on, if there's any truth behind it. It's a very odd situation. What makes it even more odd, Gene, is that the Pentagon continues to comment on it even all of these years afterwards. Just in in recent years, the Pentagon had released yet more classified information 
about the fact that they claim it's a fact that it was a, a, some kind of a weird experimental spy balloon technology. But this was something that was the, the Pentagon released information on in the last, I think like the last 10 years, they've released statements about this. Why would they feel compelled to continue to bring this to the surface? Well, maybe they think that people still believe in it and they're trying to muddy the waters. Now, I have no problem with balloons, experimental balloons like this Project Mogul, and that's another of the big explanations for what happened at Roswell. It may also be that there's a kernel of truth, and they've released 27 different explanations so that when you grab onto one, there's always another one. No, it's not this, it's that. And this has been kind of a weird issue. It's been very difficult. What makes it more interesting is that this book came out about nine years ago called The Day After Roswell from William Byrne and Philip Corso. Now, Philip Corso was an intelligence agent who said that he processed alien technology for use in private industry. So things like lasers and chips and all that stuff were based on alien technology. Now, of course, we don't have any faster than light craft. So I guess our knowledge of alien technology was limited to certain types of inventions. But that, of course, argues whether we were capable of doing that without the help of someone from out there. Yeah, you know, I I actually read this book a few years ago. Uh, while I was on a vacation. And there was some very interesting stuff in it in terms of tying together some of the details about what we had read about previously about Roswell. But I have to tell you, the whole idea that somehow alien technology had been sitting in a room for like 15 years, I think uh, the book claims that technology was basically stuck away in the Pentagon for a number of years and then gradually released to corporate world for you know, productization. I find that a little hard to believe in terms of being able to cover up something like that and have no one in the industrial world ever whisper a word about it. I have some issues with it. I, I, I'm, I got to be real skeptical about this one. It'll be interesting to see what uh, Mr. Burns has to say. Yeah, I think we're going to have to talk to him and ask him some very deep questions about what's going on, why has it remained a secret, how has it remained a secret. I mean, so-called secrets in our government leak like sieves. And this one certainly would be far more important than any secret being kept by the government, even the one about spying on Americans without a warrant. Now, this is a lot more important than the prospect of alien visitors, what kind of impact will it have to society, and we'll have to ask our guest about that. That sounds like a plan. I have a feeling we're not in Kansas anymore. planet. He traveled to the future to conquer her heart. Experience the adventure of a lifetime. Attack Attack of the the Rockoids. The critics are raving about Attack of the Rockoids. One reviewer writes, the father and son writing team of Gene and Grayson Steinberg have written a marvelous fast-paced story of interstellar warfare and star-crossed love. The battle scenes are so descriptive you can see the spaceships explode and be consumed by gigantic balls of flame. I enjoyed this story.
story, and the authors say there is more to come about the characters and the future world of the Rockoids. Fans of Star Wars and Star Trek will enjoy this story and look forward to many more adventures of Ray and Xanther. That's Attack of the Rockoids. Order your copy direct from Amazon Books, or check out a sample chapter and get a special discount on your copy direct from www.rockoids.com. That's www.rockoids.com. Attack of the Rockoids in the grand science fiction tradition. So, Larry, over the years, it's been said that reports of spontaneous human combustion, that that's been an urban legend. Now, you've got a book on the subject, so let's ask that question first. Is it real or is it not? Is spontaneous human combustion real? We have spent more than 30 decades, um, 30 decades, try three decades, I'm not that old yet, three decades looking for the answer to that very profound probing question. And our conclusion is absolutely yes, spontaneous human combustion is real. It does happen, albeit rarely, fortunately. And it happens in a variety of means that um, even the most ardent debunker um, often doesn't know about um, because they have not done the research that we have done. This is an amazing phenomenon. It is bizarre. It engenders disbelief, ridicule, and derision. That said, on occasion, the human body appears to be quite capable of smoking, self-blistering, or even burning more completely than to be accomplished in a crematorium. Hence, history has called this spontaneous human combustion because there appears to be no known external, common-sense, identifiable ignition or heat source that could cause the body to burn as it does. What are the consistent elements that seem to come up in these cases? What, what, What can we look at and say this is something that seems to be present in all of the documented cases that we have of spontaneous human combustion? That's a question that we unfortunately don't have an answer to. If we did, it would make our study of trying to understand the forces behind spontaneous human combustion much more easy. Mm-hmm. Um, there is no one common set of factors that we have been able to identify that, that runs through the hundreds of cases that history would call spontaneous human combustion, or SHC. Back in the 17 and early 1800s, when this was a hotly debated subject, if you will, among the medical community, it was said that all victims were elderly, all were female, all were sedentary, all were overweight, all were drunkards. Um, and if the French were writing about the subject, all the victims were German. If the Germans were writing about the subject, all the victims oh, were French. Were Oh, boy. Um, interesting nationalistic slant there. However, we have found that none of those situations apply across the board. Um, the youngest victim in our database was a six-week-old toddler in a crib. The oldest was a 114-year-old holy man in India. By gender, males and females were about equally represented in the database. Um, some victims are definitely drunkards, but others are teetotalers. We don't find, as we said, a common factor or thread that runs through all these victims. The phenomenon, while defined collectively as spontaneous human combustion, has so many variations within it that we don't believe there is a single mechanism to explain all these fires, um, nor a single set of circumstances that would engender the process to begin in the first place. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. Our guest is Larry Arnold, author of The Mysterious Fires of a Blaze, Spontaneous Human Combustion, and he says it is a real phenomenon or a phenomenon with multiple causes. Can you describe the symptoms? Is it actually someone just suddenly bursting into flame? Is it something where you see less less damaging symptoms? Can you maybe cover a few case histories here? Sure, we'd be delighted to. And once again, the, the case histories are themselves so varied and problematic 
that uh, we can we can begin by saying um, we have cases where the body has spontaneously blistered, which would be a second degree burn. This has personally happened to ourselves. We have cases where the victim, um, specifically a, a traveling salesman named Jack Angel, back in 1974, while asleep in his motorhome, suffered extreme third and fourth degree burns to his right forearm, so severe that the charring to the flesh necessitated that his right forearm be amputated just below the elbow. The medical documentation we have from his attending physician say that the burns were electrical-like in nature and, quote-unquote, internal in origin. That is, we would interpret that phrase as saying by the physicians involved, they concluded that Jack Angel burned from the inside out. There was no um, identifiable source of ignition in his motorhome. This was not a scalding water burn, as some of the naysayers have, have argued. Jack had other heat-type or electrical-type injuries throughout his body, but the most severe burning was to his right forearm. The flesh was charred black. He told us we had the privilege of interviewing Jack many years ago about his amazing situation. At the other extreme, or what we call classic spontaneous human combustion cases, this is how the public largely um, knows of the subject, in which the body is burned so completely that quite literally the, the body of the victim is shoveled up, the body being burned to powder, skeleton included, perhaps leaving behind at the fire scene an extremity or two, a lower leg, a lower forearm, perhaps the head. Paradoxically, in at least three cases now in our research, we have found that the head has shrunken in size, um, which again is not typical of a normal fatal fire scene. So we have a scene that looks as though incredible heat was present, and yet surrounding combustibles that are much more easily ignited than is the human body escape on, on, on scathed, even on scorched. There oftentimes is no heat damage or flame damage to the ceiling directly above the point of combustion that consumed the individual. Sometimes the director of the fire appears to be downward into the floor, into the bedding, into the chair in which the victim was seated or lying or standing. There is an absence of the noxious odor of burned flesh that is characteristic of most fire scenes. Again and again, we have first responders telling us that either there was no odor of burned flesh at these fire scenes or, even more paradoxically, perhaps a sweet aroma um, characterized as perfume in some cases. Now, do you think that somebody is murdering these people? Is this the result of some kind of nasty that somebody is using a chemical or something else to cause these people to burn up like this? An excellent question. We have indeed looked into that. Um, there was a case on the West Coast back in 1991 or 92, if memory serves, where a victim of an arson murder was found in a situation that sort of resembled classic spontaneous human combustion in progress. In that case, there was an accelerant able to be determined um, as present. In fact, the arson murder was eventually identified and incarcerated for his crime. Um, but even there, the body was found partially intact and certainly easily identifiable as a human being. In the Beatrice Oski case that we just mentioned from Illinois in 1979, accelerants were tested for by the fire department. They found no evidence of an accelerant present. Now, it, it looks like this is one of those rare paranormal phenomena where there is actually a decent amount of fairly clear photographic evidence. Uh, have you personally looked at any of the remaining physical evidence, like the burned remains of any of these bodies, Larry? We've not had the privilege of being called to one fire scene sufficiently quickly to, you know, see the, the, the scene in situ before the ashes or the body was removed from right. the combustion site. The closest we came to that was a case in upstate New York in 1986 where we arrived at the scene within 30 days. You 
You've entered another dimension. You've entered the Paracast. It is weird stuff, and I have to tell our listeners, you're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney, and I'm going to avoid all the heat jokes, all the fire jokes, <laughs> because we don't want to fire my other host. We're talking about a book. No, he's a great guy. We're talking about a book called The Mysterious Fires of a Blaze, Spontaneous Human Combustion from Larry Arnold. Now, let me ask you one other interesting question before we go on. Is there an official, is there an official explanation for some of these episodes of spontaneous human combustion? What do the scientists say? You bet there is an official explanation. The official explanation is, is multifold. First, it's, it doesn't happen. SHC is a myth, a fairy tale, a superstition, you know, something born of medieval ignorance. So therefore, we don't have to contend with them in the first place. Secondly, where they do acknowledge the presence of these incredible human incinerations, the next explanation is death by mishap, accidental blaze, smoking mishap. Even though in many cases the victim is, is not a smoker of cigarettes or pipes or cigars. Beyond that, the conventional explanation that is invoked by those who do not wish to deal with the concept of spontaneous human combustion is the human wick effect. This says, in essence, that the human body is an, an inverted or inside-out candle that once ignited externally, the fat of the body will start to render out, becoming the fuel for the blaze. And after many, 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 many hours, the body will slowly immolate in its own body fat, leaving behind ashen residue. Now, there's a number of problems with this theory. One of the problems is, based on our own experimentation, we have taken a ham shank and even marinated it in a mix of brandy, vodka, and, and other alcohols for a year because, as we said earlier, one of the original prerequisites for SHC was that the victims were always drunkards, and it was believed that the body tissues became impregnated with alcohol, which became the for this internal fire. We've attempted that experiment um, with BBC cameras in 1999, and the experiment failed miserably in terms of the wick theory. After an hour, the combustion ex extinguished itself, and we were left with a ham shank completely intact. Others have also attempted this experiment, and either they require the presence first of an accelerant in order to raise the heat of combustion sufficiently so that they can start the fat to render out of the body so it's not automatically a self-sustaining combustion until the accelerant is applied. And as we said in, in what history has called SHC, we do not have the presence of accelerants, no gasoline, no kerosene, things of that nature. Or secondly, what happens is that the blaze becomes quite intense, widespread. The room, the burn chamber um, approaches, and at least one case we've seen documented, actually achieves room flashover. Fire suppression equipment has to be rushed in to extinguish this raging inferno so the entire structure doesn't burn to the ground. And yet we find that the people who argue against spontaneous human combustion standing there telling the public, look, my experiment worked. Well, what they fail to tell the public or don't wish to have the public accept or acknowledge is that the experiment failed miserably. It did exactly the opposite of what their experimental regimen was attempting to prove. And had they not brought in the fire suppression equipment, they would have lost the burn chamber, if not the entire structure, 
around the burn chamber. And of course, as we've said repeatedly, and the photographic evidence will attest, in what history has called spontaneous human combustion fire scenes, the damage is incredibly localized and the fires are self-extinguished. Now, in advance, is there any way to diagnose somebody as potentially vulnerable to this kind of thing? Are there demographics of the kinds of people, age groups? You said, obviously, alcohol is not a factor. Age may not be a factor. Is any other factor that might be in common with these victims? Anything at all? Not that we have been able to quantify, no. Unfortunately, as we said earlier, if we could do so, it would make you know the study of this phenomenon so much easier. That's been one of the real challenges here because this appears to be something that could not be taken to the laboratory and replicated repeatedly, which makes it, quote-unquote, unscientific. Nevertheless, that doesn't mean that what history presents to us in terms of first-hand response and, and uh, testimony by the responders at these incredible fire scenes, the amazing photographs that our research over 30 years has been able to accumulate to document these amazing fire scenes aren't real. What about first-hand witnesses? Have you had uh, occurrences where someone watched this, you know, let's say a husband or a wife was sitting there with the person who burned up, where they actually saw this occur. Is there any kind of uh, testimony along those lines? Absolutely there is. And this really befuddles those who disbelieve in spontaneous human combustion and want to dismiss out of hand the research that we have done for three decades. It has been our privilege over the course of our, of our studies to find many people who have either had this occur to them firsthand and have told us about it or there have been witnesses to it. First episode um, involved a husband and wife from, um, at that time, California, Peter and Barbara Jones. In October of 1980, Peter was sitting on the edge of his bed one that morning getting dressed for work. Suddenly he realized that his body was becoming engulfed in smoke. His wife Barbara was still in bed beside him and she noticed as much to her horror. She jumped out of the bed and started patting her husband on his back, on his on his thighs, anywhere she could think of to put out the fire. The smoking spontaneously stopped as mysteriously and suddenly as it began and they were both looking at one another wondering what the hell happened to Peter Jones. Later that day while he was out in his car alone, stopped at a railroad grade crossing, Peter told us that the same episode happened to him again. This time filling up the interior of his car with smoke that gushed down his arms. He did not have any physiological damage from the episode. So there we have a survivor and an eyewitness testimony um, to the body being able to spontaneously smoke, which would be, one could say, you know, arguably the, the after effects of a first-degree burn. In 1996, an Ohio housewife, Kay Fletcher, was standing in her kitchen Sunday morning after doing the breakfast dishes. She told us that she felt a, a heat sensation rising up the small of her back towards her shoulder. When it got to the shoulder, she turned to look to see what was going on and, and, and a whitish smoke was gushing out of her white shoulder. Her husband, Mike, happened to be present at the time. He had worked at one point in a crematorium. He rushed over to his wife and, and ripped off her cloak, her outer gar garments, thinking that she must have rushed against something that was a stove burner or something that would have caught the garment on fire. The smoking persisted. He tore off her undergarments and the smoking continued to persist. What happened in that case was that Kay Fletcher had a first-degree burn, a reddening of the skin, as well as the smoking coming from the flesh, eyewitnessed by the couple. Um, by the time she consulted with her family physician, of course, the, the, the reddening of the skin had, had vanished, and not surprisingly, the physician had no insight to give her as to the predicament that she confronted and survived that February in 1996. Was oh, the smell of the smoke indicative of, for example, there's a specific smell when hair burns? Was it that kind of a smell? Uh, no, it was not. When you say smoke's coming out of someone, I'm like envisioning smoke coming out of pores 
occurs, and if we're talking about something that's being generated internally, it would make sense then that you know the the, the, the pores of the skin would literally be releasing this smoke. Um, and and if there's no smell of of hair burning, it would also seem to indicate that there wasn't enough direct heat on the outside of the skin to to singe the hair. Is that am I making any sense? There? You're, you're making you're making perfect sense in that. I think is an absolutely wonderful description of what um, Kate Fletcher experienced as well as mm-hmm. Peter Jones. You've entered another dimension. You've entered the Paracast. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. We're talking to Larry Arnold, author of The Mysterious Fires of a Blaze, Spontaneous Human Combustion, or SHC. Larry, before we go on, could you tell folks how to get a copy of your book? We've been delighted to. Thanks for offering. Uh, there are two ways. You can go to Amazon.com and order to the website there, or you can order directly from us. As the author will give your listeners a discount for taking the initiative to do so. It's a $24.95 book. People tell us it reads like a Stephen King novel, except we believe it's, it's totally um, and wholly nonfiction. Uh, 500 plus pages, photographs, amazing cases that have been lost to history until we discovered them in, in the course of our research. Um, the price, again, to your listeners, if they order directly from us, would be $19. includes shipping throughout the United States in, in that price. We'd be glad to personally inscribe it should they wish. And they can contact us through our email address, which is P-S-I-N-E-T-Sinet at voicenet.com. Or they can go to our website, www.parascience.com, and contact us there. Which shows have we seen you on? There's the series called The Unexplained on Arts and Entertainment, um, a number of shows on Discovery and The Learning Channel. Um, we've been on Sci-Fi, on Sightings, um, on Fox Family, on Sightings. We have a new show coming up on The Learning Channel, which is yet to debut. It's a series called X-Testers, and it's kind of like the Mythbusters series on Discovery, in which two gentlemen run around the world looking at alleged paranormal phenomena and try to replicate it by conventional means. And they chose spontaneous human combustion as one of their topics. The host told us to our face that of all the subjects that they tackled, spontaneous human combustion was the only one at the time that we shot the program late last fall that they could not easily dismiss by um, means replicatable under controlled conditions. That there are still some mysteries in the databases and in the cases that we presented to them that they could not replicate. So they told us that this was the one subject they, they could not explain away as the X-testers. Now we're going to find it really interesting when the show debuts whether or not they hold to that conclusion or whether it gets edited to slant to the wick theory which is what they were trying to you know demonstrate as the probable explain away. Now as far as the skeptics are concerned obviously they're looking at things to disprove the possibility of anything paranormal so let me ask you do you think there's a paranormal explanation for this or is this some kind of normal scientific phenomenon that we just don't understand yet. At this point, we're going to say that, that the answer is, is um, encompasses both of those conditions. Um, we believe that certainly the body is a very complex chemical cauldron, and that we believe that there are certain chemical processes in the body that can probably explain some cases of SHC. The body is also a very complex bioelectrical system, and many of these so-called combustion events, we believe, can be best explained not as an oxidizing fire, but as an, electric, as an electrical process within the body. And as each cell in the body has its own individual electrical potential, 
and we have billions upon billions of cells in the body, um, if they were all to discharge their bioelectrical potential across the cell membrane simultaneously, instantaneously, we're looking at a potentially you know, pretty good sizable electrical jolt coursing through the body. Is this some That's kind of idea. immune system breakdown then? Because that seems to imply it that. It could well be that. It could well be that too, yeah. Um, certain hormones, um, certain immune, immunological breakdowns of the body could well engender this. Anything that affects the hypothalamus in the body, which is the body's thermostat, causing it to, you know, over um, function to raise the body temperature very, very quickly um, is a suspect cause for um, cases of SHC. Okay, the paranormal. What kind of paranormal forces might be at work here? We found a, a geographic slash geological component to um, many cases of SHC, particularly in the United Kingdom, which has more cases of this phenomenon per capita, it seems, than anywhere else on the planet. What we discovered in plotting the, the, the sites of anomalous fires, both human and property, is that about 85% of those cases could be connected by straight al alignments, much as ley lines run through megalithic and sacred sites in the UK and elsewhere in the world. And we posit through two chapters in our book of Blaze that there's a, a telluric earth-based energy that on occasion can interact with human biology or property to cause um, the heat of combustion and the kindling point to be reached in the body or the object that, that spontaneously erupts into flame. We were, at this point, we would consider that a paranormal, something that is technically normal but lies para or alongside or outside of what is presently defined by mainstream science as normalcy. Do you think there's any outside intervention here that some force from the outside is causing these people to burn up? In, in, in this, um, what we call the cartography of combustion, um, where we believe there are earth energies involved, yes, there would certainly be an, an external um, source to cause the combustion. People have been burned by microwave radiation from military radar units. And, and while most people listening to this program have probably not thought of spontaneous human combustion in this context, millions upon millions of people have suffered spontaneous human combustion simply by being exposed to sunlight. Walking on a beach, the next day the skin is reddened, which is a first-degree burn, perhaps even blistered, which would be a second-degree burn. If they did not know or had not been taught that the sun produces a particular radiation that can cause burn injury to human flesh, they would say, I spontaneously combusted, and they would be quite accurate. Just in those cases, we, we know according to science, the external ignition source or the external burn source for those first and second degree burns. And we simply posit that there's a whole lot of other energy sources that mainstream science has yet to identify that are also capable of producing burn injuries to the human body, even extreme burn injuries as we find with George Mann and, and Dr. Bentley and Helen Conway and Mary Reeser, all of, whom body, all of whose bodies burn to powder. Now, the one thing here is that the burn is usually restricted to the body, not so much the surroundings. But have any fires, home fires, been caused by this kind of phenomenon that someone burns up and some reason the house catches fire, the hotel catches fire, etc., etc., but it all started with somebody spontaneously combusting? That is a wonderful question and an intriguing scenario and one that we certainly cannot prove at this point. Um, there are a number of structure fires, property fires that are spontaneous in nature, quite often in poltergeist cases. Um, we find linens, bed clothing, wallpaper, books, 
pets in the home spontaneously erupting in, in open flame combustion. If a person suffered spontaneous human combustion and there was sufficient heat generated or other conditions were just right, it's plausible that the fire could spread or be propagated from the burning of the body to combustibles near the body, which would then you know, set off a chain reaction and end up producing what would appear to be a structure fire. Um, we have a case that comes to mind from England where the body was burned so completely, although the house was completely intact, that when the firemen walked through the house being told that there was a body inside the home, they could not find it. But they didn't realize that they were literally walking through the ashes of the victim, that the incineration of the body was so complete. If a burning body would, as we, as you suggest, um, possibly ignite um, furniture or bed linens, which would then engulf the entire structure, one would never be able to identify or sift the ashes of the body, which was the you know ignition point, from the ashes of the rest of the burned structure. So it may well be that some structure fires had their origin in spontaneous human combustion. You've entered another dimension. You've entered the Paracast. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Vietney, and our guest is Larry Arnold, author of The Mysterious Fires of a Blaze, Spontaneous Human Combustion, or SHC. It means exactly what it says. David, you had a question. Well, I, listening to Larry, there were a couple of notes that really struck me, and I just want to ask him about the two things being that there seems to be some kind of a tie into geographical location along these lines of energy, and it made me think about magnetic energy energy and electricity because Larry what you said about the idea that these fires are not the product of ox you know of oxidation they're not fed by oxygen they're fed by electricity it makes me wonder about the tie-in between let's say some kind of weird anomalous magnetic activity that creates almost the equivalent of a chain reaction at a cellular level that creates this electrically sort of fueled fire that burns from the inside out and because there is no oxidation part of the burn, that's why it doesn't seem to spread to things that are around it. I mean, it's almost like that that starts to make it make sense to me, and especially this idea of some kind of weird magnetic anomaly. We know that there are very strong ties between magnetic energy and electrical energy. Those would seem to sort of play together to make a situation where something could burn and not affect what was around it. Does that make sense? It makes perfect sense to us. We have explored that very scenario in our book of Blaze. And what you have arrived at through your own cogent perceptive thinking um, far exceeds the, the um, mental acumen process that we have witnessed in some leading fire instructors in this country. We applaud you, David. Very insightful. All right, let's uh, applaud have... David. Let's go. <laughs> there you go. Okay. He deserves it. He deserves he, it. He does, indeed. One of the things that I'm trying to do in this show is to, as I said, I've said to Gene many times, for me, understanding the paranormal is not about believing things, but actually trying to understand what's really going on. Excellent. 
one, and that's what we are attempting to do in our own research. We have been called a mystery monger when it comes to spontaneous human combustion. We submit that we are not mongering a mystery. The mystery has its own own aspects that stand up on, on by themselves. They don't need us to monger a mystery about them. The mystery stands quite strongly on its own. If you're willing to be honest enough to confront the evidence as history presents it to us. Okay, that raises a big question here. Okay, and by the way, what we should ask here for people, is there something that the average individual can do to become more aware of this? Is there any way to protect yourself from it, or is it just the luck of the draw? How often does it happen? As we said at the top of the interview, this is an extremely rare phenomenon. Um, the first medically documented or reported case of SHC that we've been able to identify comes from the late 1400s. And from that time until today, our database has about 500 examples of spontaneous human combustion as defined by history. So divide 500 into the number of people that have been alive for the last 500 years, and you know the percentages are really incredibly small. You must, you would have a much higher chance of being struck multiple times by lightning um, than than experiencing SpawnCom once. That said, once in a while somebody hits the Powerball lottery. You know, the luck of the odds, you know, can can strike you down. Um, if you can call this luck, of course. <laughs> yeah, right. <It> <laughs> yes. uh, I don't know if that's the kind of luck I would want. I guess if you're a terrorist, we can always hope they burn up before they get to us. Sounds good to us. So there's no known way to actually generate this into somebody. There's no way for a criminal, for example, a criminal element, to do something to cause someone to just burn up in a way that is not apparent to be due to a normal cause. A conventional criminal, no. Um, if you want to get very deep into arcane, esoteric um, capabilities of the human mind and body, um, we would argue that, yes, we do believe that it's possible for fire starters to, to project uh, a, an energy into possessions, into property, into other human beings that, that would lead to spontaneous human combustion. This brings me back to maybe there's some way in a laboratory setting to experiment with combining some kind of an odd focused electromagnetic field with um, organic cellular matter to try to, to try to recreate this with the idea that maybe indeed there is a magnetic component to this. Something, something in me says that maybe there's something to follow along these lines, that perhaps there are some answers to be found there, because the one thing that does seem to me to be consistent about all this is that, from, from what I'm hearing from Larry, that all of these episodes involve the actual combustion being generated internally. It starts from the inside out, and that seems to be a consistent thing. And then um, the fact that it looks like a lot of this has been in very specific areas on the planet. So, I mean, one of the things, I, I haven't read the book, Larry, but I'm, I'm wondering if there's any kind of a, a map of the world showing the concentration over time of these episodes, where they occur. So maybe there's some way to sort of plot a correlation between these episodes and magnetic points on the planet. We have not done the plotting for the globe because the spherical trigonometry for that is extremely complex and we simply don't have enough cases, we believe, to make the, the, the um, effort worthwhile. Okay. We have plotted the, the cases for the United Kingdom, however, and, and the map of the fire lanes, as we call them, um, 
is published in a blaze. We have found um, statistically there, there is a correlation with many cases of SHC and magnetic anomalies um, disturbed magnetospheric storms in the upper atmosphere of this planet. So there's another leak to support your, your postulation that magnetism and electricity and perhaps geographic factors can all be pulled together. There's another factor we'd like to share with your audience before the interview ends. Um, this gets back to biochemistry. Um, there's a phenomenon that we just recently learned about called toxic epidermal necrolysis, also called Stevens-Johnson syndrome. And this is where the body has an abnormal reaction chemically to specific medications, even even drugs that you can buy over the counter. The The bottom line is that the body can, can have this horrific burning reaction to these chemicals, um, producing extremely severe second, even third degree burns to human flesh internally. Oh, so here boy. we have a case that we just learned about that, that is medically documented, medically accepted, extremely rare, god-awfully painful. It's just called something other than spontaneous human combustion, and yet it is indeed one and the same. Well, where do you go from here? Because we have just a few minutes left, and you have a book, you've gotten the TV exposure, you've gotten the magazine and newspaper exposure, but this is still restricted to a small number of people who investigate the strange and unknown. So right now, you have an engineering background, I notice, and maybe you can tell us, what would you want of the scientific world in terms of getting involved in this, in terms of confirming the phenomena? on finding causes, etc., etc. Well, we'd certainly be very grateful if the scientific world would look at the data that we've amassed over three decades of research and say, you know, hey, Larry, you're right. You really have found some credible material here that deserves and warrants further scientific scrutiny. And and then, as David has suggested, there are some experiments that could probably be taken to the laboratory. Um, ball lightning until recently was, was um, joked about and, and, and derided as an impossibility. And now ball lightning can be, be produced in laboratories and, and, and Japan. Mm-hmm. Japan originally and now here in the United States and elsewhere. And ball lightning may be one of these bizarre, heretofore dismissed phenomena that now um, deserves and, and warrants scientific study and may indeed be linked to some cases of spontaneous human combustion as well. So as David was suggesting cogently, you know, there are a number of avenues here that can be applied to the scientific laboratory. But first we have to look at um, the evidence that history presents to us and deal with it as factual. Hey, thank you very much. Larry thank Arnold, you, Larry. the author of Mysterious Fires of a Blaze, Spontaneous Human Combustion. Before I let you go, Larry, tell our listeners once again how to get a copy of the book. Once again, they can go directly to Amazon.com and find it listed there, or they can contact us personally at our email address or at the website. The latter is www.paraciencepareciencee.com, or the email address psinet at voicenet.com. We'd love to hear from your listeners. Um, help them understand this phenomenon greater if they have some ideas, suggestions, thoughts, insights, or perhaps a personal experience. We'd welcome all of the above from them. Thank you for joining us. Fascinating um, stuff, Larry. Thanks. Thank you, gentlemen. It's been a, a delight and a pleasure. You are about to enter another dimension, a dimension not only of sight and sound, but of mind, a journey into a sinister land of secret rites, passwords, initiations, and handshakes where the truth remains hidden and history is controlled by an elite group of mysterious men. Imagine, if you will, that I'm holding a book in my hands that explains this secret history and that the name of this book is Conspiracies and Secret Societies, The Complete Dossier. Here is described centuries of dark dealing, lies, murder, mayhem, and cover-ups in the pursuit of unimaginable money and power. My name is Brad Steiger, and the stories you are about to read may have actually happened.
at the signpost up ahead. Your next stop, Conspiracies and Secret Societies, the complete dossier. You know, we really had a hot time there, didn't we, David? It warmed the cockles of my heart, Gene. Oh, please. I knew you'd say that. I just knew you'd say that. (laughs) And that goes for our next guest, of course, William Burns. And that's no pun, by the way. He just happened to be on the same show. (laughs) William Burns, who was the co-author of The Day After Roswell with the late Philip Corso. And they're talking about, of course, Roswell, New Mexico, part of our American folklore, where UFOs or one or more flying saucers or whatever allegedly crashed in the deserts of New Mexico, that Debris was recovered, bodies were recovered, and Philip Corso suggested that some of the technology that we take for granted, like lasers and integrated circuits, came from the aliens. But that's something we're going to have to find out in just a moment on the Paracast. I wonder if that's where Windows came from. (laughs) (laughs) You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. Never know what's going to happen next. This is Tim Beckley, Mr. UFO, reporting for ConspiracyJournal.com. Fascinated by the strange and unknown, things that go bump in the night, UFOs, time travel, Area 51, the Philadelphia Experiment, shady government cover-ups? Don't be left out in the lunar cold. Sign up now for our weekly online newsletter and receive our snail mail catalogs. Go to ConspiracyJournal.com or email Tim Beckley at MrUFO at WebTV.com. It's all out of this world. So, Bill, could you tell us, who was Philip Corso? Well, Philip Corso was uh, an Army lieutenant colonel who uh, was uh, both in Army G2 intelligence, uh, but who served also in Army R&D, the Research and Development Organization in the Pentagon. And he had a long, long history. He was a World War II officer, uh, was in Italy during the war, served as the head of Army CIC, was at Fort Riley, was on General MacArthur's staff in Korea, helping to target enemy targets, potentially for nuclear weapons, was in Army PSYOPs after the war, helped negotiate the return of POWs, very well-experienced staff member in the Army who was on general staff. He was lieutenant colonel assigned to general staff and then uh, also served as the as the inspector general and had his own missile battalion. He was the commander of a missile battalion in southern Germany in the 1960s before he came to the Pentagon. So he's very well-versed, well-experienced, worked at White Sands Missile Range in the 1950s as well, and was on General Eisenhower's military staff at the White House for uh, a good four-year stretch in the middle of the 1950s, right smack during the McCarthy era. On the Paracast, we have William Burns. He's publisher of UFO Magazine. You go to UFO, UFOMAG.com to learn more. And he's also co-author of a book that came out about nine years ago called The Day After Roswell with Philip Corso. So tell us, What happened the day after Roswell? Well, Philip Corso said that in the days after Roswell, the Army took for itself a stash of crash debris, interesting-looking technology and crash debris, and basically hid that crash debris in the Pentagon, that there was an alien body, and the Army took the alien body to Walter Reed Army Hospital, 
where they autopsied it and wrote medical reports about it, wrote speculative reports about what the creature was capable of doing, and but also other technology, a fiber optic cable, a strange kind of a fabric, what looked to him, what looked to Colonel Corso like a printed circuit, computer-integrated circuit, and uh, a handheld laser. All these went to the Pentagon where they stayed for something like 15 years until General Arthur Trudeau became the head of Army R&D and Lieutenant Colonel Corso to do something with these, get these into American industry, specifically defense contractors and research labs, so that the Senate and the House Armed Services Committee committees could come up with a budget to fund these items for development. Okay, so you're saying these developments, these developments were based on alien technology. We didn't do it ourselves. We got a jump from looking at a finished product that came from alien technology. In other words, the American industry is working on things like Kevlar. This later became Kevlar, this, uh, the bulletproof vest fabric, and lasers, and fiber optic circuitry, and integrated circuitry. All these industries, IBM, Monsanto, Bell Labs, were all working on this technology. But in some cases, they were hitting stone walls. Take the case of night vision. Uh, in the alien technology were a pair of, were like headpieces that were like collecting lenses. And these were lenses that actually came out of the alien's inner eye, Corso said. And Fort Belvoir had been working on developing uh, night vision goggles, because there were night vision goggles at the end of World War II. The Germans had them on their Panzer tanks, and the British had them. But they were cumbersome, required a lot of power. And what Corso did in this one instance was he took this actual lens from the alien's eye to Fort Belvoir with, a, in those days, a whopping $60 million development budget from Army R&D and said to these guys, look, in a few years we're going to need night vision, portable night vision in Vietnam because that's our next war. And can you guys develop this in a few years? And they did. And so night vision. Today's night vision goggles, the night vision you can buy in any big five sporting goods store, right? That comes from alien technology from the crash at Roswell. Okay, now just to back up, this has been a subject that has been debated for many, many years. That there was an actual craft from outer space that crashed in Roswell, New Mexico in 1947. So we have obviously different versions of what happened based on your friendship, your association with the late Philip Corso, what do you feel actually happened then? Well, I can tell you that one of the things um, Corso himself told me was that there was, there was not just one crash, there were a series of crashes. There was a crash in Corona, there was a crash in San Augustine. Um, the crash actually wasn't in Roswell itself, but it was, what, 35, 40 miles outside of Roswell. It was outside of Roswell, right. Yeah, in a pretty desolate kind of scrub brush area into an arroyo. And uh, what Corso said was essentially that the Army, that folks had known about the crash, that D. Proctor had gone out to the crash site with uh, Mac Brazel, and they'd been out there together, and then Brazel bought, uh, brought material back to the Lincoln, to um, 
George Wilcox, who was the sheriff in Roswell, and said, here, stick this stuff in that jail cell. I, I don't want uh, anybody to get this. Keep it secure. Then finally it was Wilcox who called the Army days later, maybe a day later, and that's when the Army came out and scrubbed the site. So what they found at the site was all the strange debris. In fact, there are people who were still alive who were at that site who were taken out to that site before the Army got there who were still afraid to talk because they were scared by the Army intelligence officers who interviewed them, scared to death. No one grabbed a single piece of this stuff and squirreled oh, it away? I mean, I would like to believe that a lot of people grabbed pieces of it. Um, even Jesse Marcel, the intelligence officer of the, the 509th, right. stuffed a bunch of this uh, debris in the back of his car, drove back first to his house, where he showed it to his son Jesse Jr., who to this day, to this very day, he's still alive, he's live and kicking to this very day, um, he describes what it was like to handle the material that he had. He's, been, he's, he's done a lot of interviews. He's been all over video. Uh, and he said that this was not anything that he believes came from this planet. So call it a weather balloon, call it Project Mogul, call it whatever you want to. He does not believe that this is material that came from this planet. Other people who've seen this material... Uh, Frankie Rowe, one of the Roswell eyewitnesses, still living in Roswell, I believe, she also said that she handled the fabric that Corso talked about. She tried to bend it, twist it, destroy it, the thing would snap back into shape as soon as she, uh, as soon as somebody um, tried to fold it and crumple it up. Her father was in the fire department, and the Roswell fire department rolled because they thought it was a plane crash. Nobody knew what this thing was. Flying saucer, flying disc, flying delta, nobody knew what it was. And so they rolled on this thing. What Corso says is that when you compare all the different reports from the eyewitnesses, and Corso was not an eyewitness to this, he only read the Army reports, that there were a number of crashes, they were all outside of Roswell, Corona, St. Augustine, out at, the, out at the Foster Ranch. It was the Army who decided after it was cleaning up the site because even the Army didn't know what it was, that this material would go back to Texas, and from there it went on to uh, the Army Air Force Headquarters, and from there it went on to Wright-Patterson, then it was called, I think it was called Wright Air Force Base, but Wright Field up in Dayton, Ohio, where it would be stored and um, evaluated and analyzed. Ultimately, a stash of that material wound up in the Pentagon, in the basement of the Pentagon, and that's where Corso came in contact with it the second time. The first time was at Fort Riley in 1947. You've entered another dimension. You've entered the Paracast. On the PowerCast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney, we're talking to William Burns. He's publisher of UFO Magazine. So you go to UFO, UFO, mag, M-A-G dot com to learn more about the magazine. He's also co-author with the late Philip Corso of The Day After Roswell. And what we're learning here is, at least according to the late Philip Corso, there was indeed multiple crashes of spacecraft in the southwestern United States in 1947 that some debris was recovered. I gather also bodies were found. Were any of the creatures alive when they were found? According, depending upon the different reports, and there are certainly different reports, there was at least one creature that was alive, and the rest of them were dead. The one creature that was alive, uh, the Army took this creature 
back to the Army Air Force Base at Roswell, the 509th, and uh, went into one of the hangars, and there was, interestingly enough, and I forget his name, a plumber. I mean, you have to realize that this was an Air Force, this was an Army base, although it was a very, very high-security base. Remember, this was the base where the uh, 509th had dropped the atomic bomb on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. That's where they were based. And this became, later on, a strategic air command base. The runways there were so long they could accommodate the B-48 and B-52 bombers. So this is a very, very important base. And if you go there today, or at least, let's just say, five years ago, the last time I was there, six years ago, you will see... B-2 bombers, stealth bombers, doing touch-and-goes at the Army Air Force Base, which is really incredible to see these things go. And so there's still activity at that base. The air base is still there. Anyway, there was a live alien in bad shape taken back to the Army Air Force Base, and this one plumber who was working there, he didn't know what all the commotion was about, officers running back and forth, and intelligence, he didn't know who was who. All he knew was that they were kind of sequestering a certain kind of a, something being carried into one of the hangars, and he was just simply standing there. He wasn't trying to peep, he wasn't trying to sneak around. He was standing there, he had done his job, he was laying some pipe. They brought this thing on a stretcher, and this guy looked at this entity on the stretcher, and the entity, he looked like, he thought it was a child at first, because it was small. It looked at him, and he knew the entity was dying, because the entity itself seemed to tell him that it was dying, and they carried the entity away, and he also knew in that instant this thing was not from planet Earth. And this plumber was hustled away by some army officers, he was threatened, he was manhandled, until another officer said, hey, leave this guy alone, he's not going to tell any secrets. And he looked at him and said, listen, this is really as top secret as it gets. You open your mouth, I can't protect you. And they let him go. And And his daughter told that story, and his daughter told me that story with tears in her eyes. She was crying, she was so afraid. This guy, it was dying day kept the secret until when he was near death, a lot of these folks died of lung cancer, they were all smokers, asbestos, whatever, and uh, he told her that story and said this is the story that happened in Roswell in 1947. So Bill, I- I've got to ask you about some of the, um, there's some details, I actually read the day after Roswell a couple of years ago, and it was a fascinating story, the, I found some inconsistencies in the story, but the part that I have an issue with, and I just want to—I want to know about your thoughts about this specific issue, which is this transference of technology. There are two things I want to bring up that I think are important. The the the, the obvious one being, if indeed there was a transference of technology from the military to the industrial complex, there had to be a number of people involved in actually having access to this stuff, having access to recovered artifacts. How? could they possibly have kept all of this so secret for so many years, given the number of people who would have likely have been involved? Um, and and the, the second part of that question is, there's a pretty well-documented history of certain technologies, like laser technology, the transistor, you know, which morphed eventually into the integrated circuit. Mm-hmm. And it's not uncommon that technological development takes leaps at certain points based on just the fact that there's a serendipity of multiple groups of scientists working on a a problem around the world, finally cracking it. How could, you know, I mean, explain to, let's say I'm going to be the skeptic here. How could it possibly be 
that something like this could be kept under wraps for so many years. What's your thoughts about that, Bill? It was never kept under wraps. Um, I know that's kind of like a very blithe, glib answer, but the fact is it was never kept under wraps. One of the things that Corso said was that this was well known within Army intelligence circles. And I'm not just going on his word. A broad answer to your question is that people in, 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 in the intelligence circles within the military and uh, ultimately the CIA and the National Security Agency at on a need-to-know basis, certainly knew all about this. U.S. presidents knew all about this. The director, the DCIs, the director of Central Intelligence, the directors knew all about this. This was an open secret. Nobody knew exactly what the secret was. So when you say, how could this be kept under wraps, right. this was that there were UFOs, we'd recovered some technology, we might have even dealt with them. These were open secrets within the government. It wasn't as though this was the, uh, they were kept in a black box. The actual details were, there were various opinions as to what the details were, and there were so many different cover stories put out and so much disinformation about this that people simply didn't know what the truth was, although they knew there was a truth. So the best way to keep a secret like this is to keep it in plain sight and just to have various kinds of cover stories and so you have people fighting over it. And another thing, another way that the CIA was able to maintain a cover over this was that they used, actively and affirmatively used, the whole UFO mythos, so to speak, the urban legend of UFOs, mm -hmm. to cover up their own secret testing of various spy planes. And when somebody got too close to what the secret was, if the person became dangerous, then um, obviously you would warn the person, you would make the person the subject of derision, and in extreme cases you would criminalize, come up with certain kinds of criminal stories about the person. Another way the government kept the details of the big secrets secret was by cutting off the flow of research money to anybody who threatened to blow the whistle. Uh, I know this from another, from an astrophysicist, who said that he was amazed at how many astronomers knew about UFOs. They'd see them. They'd see them after they were observing some star, and a UFO would cross the vision finder and destroy a whole series of um, photos that they were taking. So he asked these astronomers, I, I don't understand, why don't you... Go public with this. This is incredible. And they said, because if we went public with this information, then what would happen would be we would lose our funding. And so it all comes down to money in the end. Yeah. Um, <laughs> another great story comes from Alfred Weber, who was the big um, exopolitics guy. Alfred Weber tells this phenomenal story of his working with um, Stu Eisenstadt, and I'll mention name names and everything else, Stu Eisenstadt at the Carter White House in the 1970s. And the Carter White House, now remember, Jimmy Carter was the first president actually to run on a promise to tell the truth to the American people about UFOs. Remember? Really? He saw UFOs. Right. Yes, yes, I, I remember. So we all know. So on the campaign okay. trail, he said, I'm going to tell the truth to the American people. So Stu Eisenstadt, who was a domestic policy advisor to Jimmy Carter, is working with a number of organizations, in particular the Stanford Research Institute, to develop protocols for extraterrestrial contact. In other words, what should the government do to facilitate extraterrestrial contact? To um, How do they handle things? What kind of administration should they have? What kind of bureau should they have? 
I mean, you can imagine this is going to take a whole bunch of uh, new administrative initiative to use, uh, right, political speak, bureau speak. talk. Right? So he's working at the Institute for Advanced Study, and Alfred Weber is working with Stu Weisenstadt, and suddenly they are notified by the Pentagon that um, they have to stop the study. And Alfred Weber says, wait a minute, you, you, this is a White House study. You're the Pentagon. You can't just suddenly step in and kill a study. And the Pentagon sends a budget officer to Stanford Research Institute um, in California. And they have this big meeting, and the, and the Pentagon budget officer says, you will stop this study. And um, Al Weber goes off the wall. Now, here's a guy who is a lawyer, Yale Law School. He worked for the, um, the uh, Manhattan Prosecutor's Office, very educated guy goes off the wall and says, you cannot step in. This is a presidential initiative. You can't do this. And the Pentagon budget officer says to the Stanford Research budget officer, how much of your research comes is government-funded? And the guy from SRI says, about one-third. He says, we will cut that off. (laughs) SRI couldn't function without that money. And so... Finally, Al Weber turns to the budget officer and says, why? Why would you do this? This is an outrage you're stepping in. This is, and you can imagine the fury of this. And the Pentagon officer says to Al Weber, because there are no UFOs. And Al Weber says, what? What? He says, there are no UFOs. And we don't want to see a research institute working for the Pentagon spending its time researching something that's not real. You've entered another dimension. You've entered the Paracast. You know what is real? What? The Paracast. This is the Paracast. (laughs) I'm Gene Steinberg with David Bietney, and we are hosting the session. Our guest right now, William Burns, he is the publisher of UFO Magazine. Go to ufomag.com, ufomag.com to learn more. And he's also the author with the late Philip Corso of The Day After Roswell. And we're talking about attempts, number one, to try to bring this information to the public arena and how they fared. And we have one example he just mentioned, which actually involved the White House. So I assume after this, knowing that there were no UFOs, Jimmy Carter caved. Jimmy Carter caved and uh, completely. And that was it. That was it for any further research on the part of the Carter administration. But that's that's kind of the, the answer to how could the subject be kept secret for all these years. Everybody knew about it. There really was no big secret. What was what was happening was every time somebody got too close to it, the government stepped in, the, the military stepped in, stomped its foot, and said, you're not going to tell this story, period. That's all. And so that was the end of it. Another great story it was uh, comes from the person who was... Uh, who who had worked in the Office of Naval Intelligence. He was a commander. This is the guy, to show you how, what he was, he invented the heads-up cockpit display that's used now in Air Force jets and Army helicopters, right? The heads-up display. He invented that. Yeah, it's ubiquitous technology. Yes. He was the same person who, in the beginning of World War II, he was on a naval vessel in the Pacific that saw... The Japanese, they picked up the Japanese fleet on radar coming to Pearl Harbor. They radioed 
the, to Pearl Harbor that there was this fleet they presumed it was Japanese. Everybody knew the Japanese were going to attack at some point. And uh, they were told to stand down and not report it. Interesting piece of information. Really? The Navy. Yes. True story. The guy's name was George Hoover. George Hoover, for, for anybody who was around during the 1950s and remember those great Walt Disney World television shows, Man in Space, Tomorrowland, remember those great, that great series about astronauts going into space and the space program? It was on um, Walt Disney Sunday night in the 50s. Actually, those have been recently released on DVD um, by Disney, so they're available. People can buy them. They're really great. Well, guess what? This person I'm talking about was the consultant to Walt Disney for those shows. So that'll give you an idea who he was. This person is mentioned in Office of Naval Intelligence reports. He was one of the two officers who were asked to investigate the legend of the Philadelphia experiment. And what happened was that Morris K. Jessup, who wrote the book UFOs Are Real and the, all these books about UFOs in the 50s, the famous Morris K. Jessup, was one of the first people to write about the Philadelphia Experiment and how the USS Eldridge went into a time distortion and disappeared in time, and these two sailors turned up in, um, uh, years and years later. That was a very popular story within Morris Jessup's book. The Navy was so concerned about that story that they asked George Hoover to research that story. And this actually is in a Naval Intelligence Report. You could find it in my book, um, The UFO Encyclopedia, the UFO magazine, UFO Encyclopedia, where we cover this story. So George Hoover also wrote about that. George Hoover said, this is a direct quote, that when we asked him about UFOs, and he was old, very old at this point, he knew he had Alzheimer's disease. And um, he said, let me tell you the real secret. He was, this person was the Navy's Philip Corso in terms of UFO research. He said, everybody knows about UFOs in the military. That's not the secret. We were all stunned at how much people would have known about UFOs in the military. He said, that's not the secret. The secret wasn't that there were craft coming from out of space. The big secret was that they were us. And the other big secret was that we had some of the same powers that they did, specifically psychokinesis, teleportation, and time travel. Ah. Uh. Now, and he said that's what the military was so concerned about keeping. That was the secret. You're saying that UFOs actually come from our own future? They were time machines. They're not distance machines per se, and that they. They come from the future. They've been around. These are craft that traverse all time, and they're us. Well, when you say they're us, and they're us coming from the future, is the idea that they're coming back to try to change the course of history or to try to... Well, that's what some people have said, that, that we are in kind of a, a, an, an endless history loop trying to reform the past. I don't know if that's true. I can't, I can't say that's true or not. What I can say is that this is that George Hoover said that we have the power now to engage in time travel, not with fancy machines, but um, kind of psychically. We have the power now to control outside events, that if we knew how to do this, if we could be trained to do this, we actually could control events in the future. That was particularly frightening to the people who knew the secret. And we have the power to engage in telekinesis and, and other kinds of um, mental powers. That was the secret they brought. 
Now, this was the secret that was very frightening to the army. So when you say, how could the secret have been kept for so long, my answer is what George Hoover said, it wasn't a secret. That's what Corso said. This was never really a secret. The secret was that uh, there was a secret within a secret, and that's what the army and, 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 and uh, that's what the military or intelligence agencies were trying to keep, but that when you read what folks have said about this, even Ronald Reagan, I mean, talk about keeping a secret. Here is Ronald Reagan. He's the governor of California. He sees, in his governor's point, um, he sees a, what they think is a UFO. They don't know what it is, right? Flying um, near the Mojave Desert. So Reagan orders his pilot. Can you imagine this story? He to follow this? pilot to follow the UFO across the Mojave Desert, which they do, until the object soars out of sight. They, they, they land, and the first person Ronald Reagan sees is a Wall Street Journal reporter. And, and, and Reagan says, you'll, well, you'll never imagine what happened. We were flying across the California, and we saw a UFO. And he describes how they chased this thing across the desert. He says, I, I am going to go home and tell Nancy right away. Now, that's the governor of California. That's not keeping a secret. In other words, everybody knew about this. This was in the newspaper. Stanton Friedman said that, and, and I, it's true, uh, I, I interviewed the late Walter Hout myself for UFO magazine back in the day. He says that, that, that at, when the Army first came upon this crash site, there was no secret. Colonel Blanchard said to his press officer, who was Walter Hout, Lieutenant Walter Hout, who's a bombardier. So this guy is not some kind of PR flack that comes out of um, some 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 school of public communications. This is an this is an this is an army flyer, an aviator. He's a bombardier, and he was in the group that dropped the atomic bomb. This he tells him, listen, we um, I want you to write this press release. These are Walter Houtsworth's wanted to write this press release, uh, get it out to the papers of this afternoon that we picked up a flying saucer out there in the desert outside of Roswell. Just just get it out there so the press right that infamous headline that did indeed go into print indeed well it did indeed go into print now imagine this that's not a cover-up this came right out of the base of course the next day the army goes ballistic about this and pulls the story back and gets everybody to agree it was a weather balloon everybody has red faces etc etc you know the rest of the story but try to imagine that there was no secret. And that's exactly how Philip Corso put it. When people would ask him, well, how did they keep it secret for so long? His answer was, they never kept it secret. That's how they kept it secret for so long. You guys are the ones keeping it secret. You guys are fighting amongst yourselves on small details. Oh, there were two aliens. Oh, there were three aliens. Oh, the alien had six fingers. No, the alien had three fingers. No, the alien was four feet tall. No, the alien was five feet tall. And you, you were acting like a bunch of backbiting people each with your own little turf, of course it's a secret. <laughs> Hiding in plain sight, indeed. You've entered another dimension. You've entered the Paracast. We're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney. Our guest is William Burns, publisher of UFO Magazine. If you go to ufomag.com, you'll learn more. He's also the author with the late Philip Corso of The Day After Roswell. Before we go on, Bill, 
Can you tell us, how does one get a copy of UFO Magazine? Is this strictly online, or you, can you buy no, a copy in your no. newsstand? Uh, let me tell you, this is, um, you can walk into your Barnes & Nobles, your Borders, your Books A Million. You can walk into your local bookstore, and if you come in early enough in the month, they'll still have some. We, get, we tend to sell out at these stores. You can also contact us at uh, www.ufomag.com and order a subscription right online through PayPal. You can call me at 1-888-UFO-MAGA. That's 1-888-UFO-MAGA. Or you can just type UFO Magazine. I will have picked up by the INE. And uh, you'll get me, and I'll get on the phone. And uh, with some very pleasant chatter, I can either tell you where to send your check or money order or take your credit card. So you can do it by phone, by Internet, or by mail at UFO Magazine. Post Office Box 11013, Marina Del Rey, California, and you will get your monthly issue of UFO Magazine. Okay. Well, we're pleased to know that. Let's talk about the alien inventions, okay? Sure. All right. Any of the technology relate to propulsion systems at all? Just curious. Not from Corso's end of it. I mean, the answer is yes, but it, that was not... That was n not anything that Corso himself was involved in. Uh, the, in fact, I've got another great story about propulsion systems that one of the folks in the know, there are, you would ask me, gee, Bill, why did you believe this guy? Wh what was it? I mean, I was not a UFO researcher before this. In all honesty, um, anybody growing up in the 1950s, or even people who were around the 1950s and didn't grow up, um, would, <laughs> uh, I think he's and, talking and about that me. That describes me, actually. Yes, right. Um, I still have to figure out what I want to be when I grow up. But the point is that anybody around in the 1950s remembers the whole flying saucer mystique. I mean, I remember going to the movies on Saturday for all those great action westerns, uh, invaders from and the science fiction movies. And you'd see this, the, the movie tone news of flying saucers over Washington, D.C. Like Ed Hurley, he would narrate this thing. Well, this is the astounding thing about it. You'd see this on the air in the movie theater while you want, in, in between the science fiction double feature. So when you knew something was going on, you'd see this island, Earth, get scared to death by the big bugs, then you'd see the UFOs over D.C. So the point that I'm trying to get to is that you knew about this stuff, right? It was, it was in the air. And like any kid in the 1950s, Tom Corbett, Space Cadet, and everything else, I was fascinated by it. But I really wasn't a UFO person at all, uh, except with this fascination. Along about um, what I was was a true crime writer. And I'd done a number of true crime books about serial killers and worked on a book by, about Ted Bundy. And, but that's really what I was. And then a motion picture company had licensed the rights to uh, Phil Corso and um, to do a book about Army POWs, nothing about UFOs. And that's when in one of the conferences, and that's what I was hired to write, work with Phil Corso on it. Corso dropped this bomb about... Uh, his work in Army R&D. Well, one of the documents that Corso produced, and this is, this is when you say, how do you know this guy was on the level? Um, at first I didn't, of course, 
He produced this document, and I'm telling you, I'm not a document expert, so if you handed me a document and said this comes from wherever, uh, I'd be skeptical, but I wouldn't have the forensic tools to be able to say this is not true, this is true, oh, look at the way this T is crossed, couldn't be true. I can only tell you I saw this document, it looked, smelled, read like some kind of military report. The report was, from an Army unit, an after-action report, on an army unit that had come upon a UFO crashed in Texas. And Corso produced it and said, Bill, this is a real thing. So and what kind I of detail does this document have, Bill? Very detailed. I mean, I'm telling you, it was more concerned. Here's how it, here's what I'm saying, it smelled real, okay? It was not woo-woo, whoa, it's a UFO, I can't believe it, oh, it's glowing red, it's glowing green, let's duck, it's firing death rays at us. It had more to do with how the different military personnel were to be positioned around this object, how they were to approach it, what kind of, what the deployment of equipment would be, how the personnel were to move, who was in command over here, who was the unit leader over there. I don't know the exact military terms. I don't remember it. I wanted to keep the document, of course, but he took it back. So you can imagine when I read this, and it was how this unit deployed, formed up, what steps they would take to approach the object. But, and this is what was so stunning about this report, it wasn't a typed-up report. It was on a, from a dot matrix printer, so it was an older report. But here's what was so stunning. It was as if the report was, work, was um, the after-action briefing was based on existing protocols. So, so they had set up a method to deal with this kind of that. situation already. Yeah, these were existing protocols. This was not a situation where, what do we do, who do we call, somebody dial 911, get, uh, you know, get a truck here. This was what you do in situations like this. In other words, they were trying to do this by the book. What was the book? What was the book? And, and then the question, of course, being this is all about American military involvement, one has to assume that if this was going on in the United States, there must have been activity in other countries. Certainly we know in, in terms of UFO activity, there have been specific flaps that have happened in places like Mexico and in Europe and certainly in South America. So what do we know about this kind of um, uh, documentation bill in terms of foreign military powers? Is there any substantial... Sure. Base in, of stuff? In, 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 the, in uh, the middle 90s, the French, uh, there was a French military analytical committee. Uh, they called themselves COMETA, C-O-M-E-T-A, and they published a report based on their research. And this was a military-based report. So we're not talking about, we're not talking about civilians doing a research study about whether UFOs are real. This is a military report done for the express purpose of ascertaining whether we have a military threat from extraterrestrial objects or not. Now, they're not taking extraterrestrial objects as a given. They're looking at as many reports as they can from, from countries in Europe and in Asia and in the Middle East and Russia, of course, about UFO encounters by pilots and, pers- and uh, official personnel, public safety personnel. And from these reports, they're extrapolating whether the military should be concerned. And sure enough, they give some dramatic descriptions of reports, one of which is about a, a takes place over uh, in Iran, over Tehran, uh, where these pilots, 
encounter, uh, this is in the 19, I think it's in the 1970s, encounter uh, a UFO, and they try to triangulate on it, get vectors on it. They approach the UFO, which takes over the control of their craft, fires some kind of a light weapon, they don't know what it was, an energy weapon, disables the craft and only disengages when the craft drops off, and then the pilots regain control. And when I was reading this report, this was published by, this was this is called the Kameda Report. It's readily available. Folks can go to the Internet. They can uh, read UFO Magazine, our back issues. We have it completely covered. It's astounding. This is a real report done about the threat of, invasion of airspace by these extraterrestrial objects. It concludes they are extraterrestrial, and it says that the military should be very, very concerned about the ability of these craft to penetrate the most secure airspace and the inability of um, conventional aircraft, the world's aircraft, to um, shoot these things down. You've entered another dimension. You've entered the Paracast. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. We're proud to welcome on this show our third, William Burns. He's publisher of UFO Magazine, available from ufomag.com or at your favorite bookstore, newsstand, etc., etc. And he's also the author with the late Philip Corso of The Day After Roswell, among a large number of books. And Looking at this now, Bill, and this is all these years and years, nearly 60 years after Roswell, it's still very controversial. Even people involved in looking into UFOs, some believe, some disbelieve. So when the person says, you know, this is a lot of nonsense, these people are trying to remember things that happened 50 years ago, and how could you believe this, how could you take it seriously, what do you tell them? Well, I I tell them this. I say that if you look at the number of reports, if you look at the number of statements and comments from people all around the world, I mean, we're just not talking about a bunch of nutcases running around with pie tins on their head and wearing antenna. I mean, I'm talking about real two American presidents, Ronald Reagan and Jimmy Carter. Whether you, so, I mean, you know what's great about that? It's like even if you're Matt Rudd, this is across the political spectrum, if you get my on my point. So you can't say, well, it's at the liberals, the Democrats, of course they have UFOs. No, this is Ronald Reagan, an icon among American presidents. Here's a guy who says, I saw a UFO. I had an encounter. I chased a UFO. I was so impressed by what I saw that I went forward and I said to Mikhail Gorbachev, hey, here we are sitting here with our missiles pointed at each other. Remember the Reykjavik meeting? Our missiles were pointed at each other. We can wipe ourselves out. Wait a minute, dude. You've got these UFOs out there. What if they attacked us? Wouldn't we come together to defend ourselves together? I'm going to have an anti-ballistic missile program. I'm going to spend a gazillion dollars and ring the earth with a ball of satellites to protect us against anti-missiles. But guess what? We can point it up. We can point it down. We're going to defend the earth. And you know what I'm going to do when I'm all finished? Remember Fritz Mondale said this in the 1984 elections? I'm going to give you this anti-missile system. I'm going to give it to you. We're going to spend the money. We're going to develop it. We're going to do it, and I'm going to give it to you. 
This is an incredible... Can you imagine this? I mean, look at the import of that statement. It is a stunning statement by a, by a quote-unquote conservative American president to the chairman of the Soviet Union, a commie, right? That's what he says to him. In the previous administration, Jimmy Carter says, I will tell the truth to the American people about UFOs, but it doesn't stop there. Gerald Ford, whom Jimmy Carter defeated in 1976, was so concerned when he was a congressman about the Michigan sightings in the 1960s, Gerald Ford wrote to Mendel Rivers, chairman of the House Armed Services Committee, about you should get the truth out to the American people about UFOs. That's Jerry Ford. Richard Nixon, before Jerry Ford, took Jackie Gleason, and we have it from Jackie Gleason's own mouth. This is not urban myth. It's not urban legend. Richard Nixon, Jackie Gleason was bugging him and bugging him, and there were golf partners in Florida, bugging him and bugging him. Finally, Nixon says, okay, fine. He, he gets him taken to Homestead Air Force Base in Florida, where Jackie Gleason, with his own eyes, sees alien bodies and is so shaken. His wife, Barbara, says it changed his life forever. Now, these are all the presidents going back from Ronald Reagan back all the way to Richard Nixon. Bill Clinton, let's get two later presidents. So Jimmy Carter, in his um, briefings for transition from Jerry Ford, asks the director of central intelligence. He says, he says to the DCI, uh, could you please give me the UFO files? And the director of central intelligence says to Jimmy Carter in the White House, Mr. President-elect, you have no need to know, but I'll tell you what I will do, Mr. President. I will tell you where to go to find the information, because it exists. Who was the DCI that said this to Carter? He was President George H.W. Bush. So you've got another president saying the UFO material exists and here's where it is. So that's what one of the reasons Jimmy Carter asked Stuart Eisenstadt, his director of domestic policy, keeping it out of the military side of it, to Go find the information from Alfred Weber and employ the resources of Stanford Research Institute. So that is George Bush. And the president who succeeded George Bush, Bill Clinton, said to Webster Hubble, I want you to try to get me the real scoop on UFOs. And Webster Hubble was told, you have no need to know, you're not going to get anything. Oh, boy. Hey, we're out of time. Thank you very much again. Thank you. And thank, thank you for Bill. joining us on the Paracast. William Burns publisher of ufo magazine go to ufo mag mag.com to learn more to subscribe to get the phone numbers and everything or check your favorite premium newsstand like a barnes and noble or a board of books for a copy but he says get there early in the month otherwise it's sold out william i have to tell you this is the beginning because we need to have you back again and again to talk further about the subject and maybe even have you participate, we hope, in a debate on the subject. Thanks again for joining us on the Paracast. Thanks for having me. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next. I once went to a public speech, an appearance, that George Anderson did, this very famous medium. And I asked him about whether or not he ever asked any of these spirits from the afterlife about some of these paranormal things that we in this realm are confused by. Specifically, I asked him if he ever brought up the um, UFO phenomenon. 
to these spirits and the departed and, and maybe if we could get some insight from beyond the grave as to what this unexplained phenomena was in its realm you had to see the look he gave me it was absolutely withering and he basically just you know sort of shucked me off and said i'm not going to even address that which i thought if you know if you had a direct line to the afterlife you know besides asking for lottery numbers i'd be wanting to know well explain some of the stuff here that we don't understand well there's going to be a lot of things that we're going to try to explain in future episodes of the paracast the paracast with gene steinberg and david biedney is a production of making the impossible incorporated join us next week for a new adventure in the paracast 